Well, good morning. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. And also, happy Holy Trinity Sunday. For those of you who follow the church calendar, um, churches around the globe today are celebrating the fact that the God that we have come to know is the God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, I, like any good evangelical Protestant, uh, did not learn or think much about the Trinity uh, in my growing up and spiritual formation, but I've recently really been convicted uh, that one of the foundational things of our faith is that God is love, and that is only possible if there is someone he's loving from the beginning, right? Um, so I have more and more um, come to um, the idea that we as a people would do well to follow a bit alongside with the church calendar. There's a sense of solidarity that comes from us knowing what our brothers and sisters around the globe are um, doing and worshiping. Uh, but unfortunately today, that is about the extent of what I will be talking about the Trinity because we are finishing up our series. Um, so, if you will open up your Bibles to Genesis 12. I was trying to think, how can I incorporate Trinity into the story of Abraham? And that was just going to be way too much of a stretch. So, um, there will be a bit of mentioning of it later. But Genesis 12 is where we are going to be. If you are visiting with us, we're so happy that you're here. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback underneath the chair in front of you all if you all want to look along. Um, so, as I said last week, just to catch everybody up to speed, um, we have been studying uh, these ancient stories. So, the series that we've done for four weeks, this will be our last week, is called Stories of Old, Christian Reflections on Ancient Tales. Um, and so, we've been looking at some key stories in the book of Genesis, and we found out that Genesis is broken up into two halves. So, you have Genesis 1 through 11, which is all about God's dealings with the world. And it sets the scene for everything that's going to happen in the future. So we look at the world and we see a world that is, uh, seems to not be uh, all right. There seems to be injustice. There seems to be a lot of violence. Um, and we want to know why. And Genesis kind of gives us that story. So the story of Genesis is that God creates this good world. And then in Genesis 3, mankind rebels. We rebel against our creator, our covenant partner. And because of that, sin enters the world and starts to fracture and break everything. Um, and so God's world is still good, but it is now broken. And things just spiral. They go from bad to worse. We see the first murder in Genesis 4. We see that God gets to the point in the flood story where he says, I'm sorry that I created. I'm sorry that I made them. Now he sends the flood uh, but saves Noah and his family. And then last week, we looked at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. So all of humanity had gathered in one place. Right? This is after the flood. This is a few generations after. They gather in one place, and they decide to build a city and a tower that reaches the heavens. And they've done this in order to make their name great. So Babel is a symbol of human pride. It's a symbol of... Um, Seeking control, grasping control from God. Um, and we see last week that God's response to Babel is actually an act of mercy. So he sees that all humanity has gathered 
and this is not going to be good. So God scatters them and confuses their languages. And he does this always, and we've seen that he is consistent. From Genesis 3 on, every time there is violence, every time there is sin, he is doing everything he can to stop it, to curb it, to mitigate the violence so that it doesn't continue to spread out into his creation. And so he's consistent in Genesis 11. Uh, If you want to think about it like this, Genesis 3 through 11, God is on defense. Genesis 12 marks a transition. God is switching from defense and he's going on offense. Right? Sports analogy for the win. My husband didn't think I could do it. There you go. Um, so, we have God marking a transition. Uh, this is a transition from both how he deals with humanity and who he deals with. So, Genesis 12 through 50, the rest of the book of Genesis is all about God dealing with Israel, with one specific family. So, let's take a look. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, where they came to the land, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. For there, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going to Negev. Okay, so a few things to note here. Uh, the first, and I didn't read the, the chapter above, or the section above, which gives us the genealogy that leads up to Abram. So what we learn from there is that Abram grew up in the land of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans. These are the ancient Babylonians, okay? which was the empire that will eventually come and destroy uh, the temple and take the Jews into exile, so that's significant. So Abram up to this point um, has lived and worshipped the gods of the Babylonians. He does not start out worshiping the God that we know in the story of the Bible. So Abram does not just leave his family. He doesn't just leave his home, but he leaves the gods of his ancestors. He forsakes that. He turns. Um, The second thing uh, that we note here is that we get absolutely no intro into why God has chosen Abraham. There is no character development. There is no description. The only thing that we get is his age. Okay? So with Noah and the flood story, God was very specific. He says Noah walked with God. Noah was righteous. And that's why he picks him. We get nothing with Abraham. This is what God is hanging it all on, right? And we get no description. We don't know if Abram's a good guy. He's not so great. Uh, The last thing to note, though, is that the one thing that we do know about Abram is he's 
75 years old, okay? So he is uh, past the prime of life, right? So if anything, I found a reason why God should not pick this guy. Um, he is 75. And remember, after the flood, God has limited man's days to 120 years. So it's not like, oh, he's going to live to 400 and something like Enoch. That's not the case. His days are numbered. Uh, not only this, but we learn later on in the story that his wife is barren. So... If God is going to pick someone, Abram is not it. You would not pick... If I'm going to move to offense, right, you want a really great starter. I don't know enough about sports to give you the name of who is a great starter. I'm sorry, right? But you want, like, the, the prime guy. This is who I'm going to start with. Abram's not it, okay? Uh, now, God promises Abraham several things. Uh, the first thing that he promises Abram is a great name. If you remember last week, I had you circle the name in Genesis 11. So if you will, if you have your own Bible, circle name. Uh, this is right in verse 2. I will make your name great. So automatically we see the parallel with the Tower of Babel. They build the tower in order to make their name great. Right? Um, and so... Babel is this symbol of a prideful longing for significance. We talked about last week how um, desiring a name uh, was rooted in a fear of mortality. So if I'm going to die, right, and I know that I am, all of us are going to die. Um, real cheery sermon this morning. Uh, so, happy Father's Day. Uh, so all of us are going to die, right? Um, but maybe if I do something in my life that is significant, then I will create a name and people will be talking about me long after I'm gone, right? Um, so that's the idea behind Babel. We're going to create this awesome tower, and in a sense, we are going to kind of immortalize ourselves. Uh, but we see that God is the only one who can bestow this honor. And he gives it to a guy with no status, no title, no political clout. He gives it to a 75-year-old dude who can't have kids. So the whole idea of the name being passed on, you kind of need kids to say, hey, remember your great-great-great-great-great-granddad, Abram? You need children in order for that to happen. Um, okay, and then the final thing that God promises Abram is land. So land, seed, and blessing, those are the three promises. Um, and also what's interesting is that Abraham never receives this promise. He dies without living in the land of Canaan. Right? It isn't until Moses frees the people from Egypt that they enter the land. Uh, so I, I want you to pay close attention to what God is doing here because this is really important. So Genesis 12, all of scripture affirms that Genesis 12 is God's solution. Everything's gone from bad to worse. But Genesis 12, this is God's plan. This is how he's going to fix it. And here's the thing. He chooses to save his broken world by working within that broken world. He doesn't pick someone who's the stellar, righteous person. He works within the broken world to save it. Notice he doesn't say, I'm scrapping the project. After the Tower of Babel... Okay, I, I said at the, you know, after the flood that I'm not going to destroy you guys, but you're on self-destruct anyway. He doesn't do that. He doesn't scrap 
the project. He gets close with the flood, right? I mean, he whittles it down to Noah and a couple animals. Um, So he gets very close to scrapping the project. But after the flood, he says, I'm never going to do that again. I am never doing that again. I have set my bow in the sky. The rainbow is a sign that I've put my weapon down. As long as you see that rainbow, you know my weapon is not in my hands. I'm not going to destroy the world again. He is committed to that. Now this is why I get really suspicious when I hear any kind of theology that predicts a massive global destruction at the end of time. Um, And Christ kind of sucking us away into this other worldly habitat. Because it seems to me that all throughout scripture, God is doing everything he can to rescue and redeem and restore us. I mean, he is obsessive about it. He will just not let us go, right? You think of like a rebellious teenager who's just like, just leave me alone. And God's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. Uh, He does not just say, okay, well, I said I wasn't going to destroy the world with a flood, but you didn't expect fire. Ha ha, suckers. Right? He doesn't find a loophole at the end. This is not how God operates. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but you will be amazed how many of my students I have to say, look, that's not the picture of the end of the story. God is caring for his creation. He wants to fix it. Humans from the beginning, we've been charged to be stewards, right? The image of God is this idea of stewardship. (coughs) At the end, heavenly Jerusalem comes down. And we see that Eden is not destroyed, but it is restored. It is, the picture is given of a marriage that heaven and earth are joined like a husband and wife are joined. Otherwise, the calling of Abraham is just delaying the inevitable. Says, okay, well, you're kind of set up for failure anyway, but we'll just see how long this goes, right? But that is not the story we read in Scripture. Another problem with this kind of end of the world uh, destruction theology is that it kind of squashes any Christian commitment on environmental issues, right? Why polish a sinking ship? I've literally had someone tell me that. And I'm like, well, I think that was the command that God gave us from the beginning, right? That we're supposed to steward and care for both human and non-human alike, right? All life is precious to God. So the story, once again, shows us all the other things that we have seen up until now. That God has a deep commitment to creation, And he will do everything in his power to keep it from self-destructing. He has a deep commitment to creation. So what can we learn from the story? What does this mean for you and I as followers of Christ, as people who are committed to bringing the kingdom of God? I think there are four important truths that we can learn from the story. The first is God always has the whole world in view. From the beginning... It has always been about saving and restoring the entire world. If you'll flip over just a few more chapters to Genesis 17. Genesis 12 through uh, about 17 are full of God promising things to Abraham. So in Genesis 17, we'll start in verse 4. 
And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to you and your offspring after you. So it is not just that Abraham is going to be the father of one nation. He is going to be the father of a multitude of nations. He will be the father of many nations. It's always been outward focused. Uh, real brief, briefly, you don't have to flip there. Isaiah 49, 6, if you just want to write it down, says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. But I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So that was Isaiah 49, 6. And then Isaiah 61, 11. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Uh, Isaiah 61, by the way, is the passage that Jesus reads um, when he comes into the temple. Now he reads the first part where he talks about freeing the captives, but he says this, uh, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. So we see a foreshadowing of what Jesus has come to accomplish. So the calling of Abram is not a sign of God playing favorites, of God just picking this one person because they are special. But what God is doing here is changing his strategy. He chooses Abram and invests in one people with the expectation that once I've trained you up, you now will go out into the world and show the world what I'm like. And Abram's family are therefore called to be witnesses. This idea of bearing the image of God is once again renewed with Israel. Uh, so one of my favorite theologians says that um, being made in the image of God is like an angled mirror. So you reflect out to the world what God is like. When people look at you, they should get a small picture of what the God of the universe is like. And that's the, the calling that Israel was given. Um, so again, we see that from the beginning, Israel's mission was outward. From the very beginning, I have called you, Abraham, to be a blessing to the nations. Okay. So the second thing, that was the first thing. God always has the whole world in view. The second thing that we learn is that the people of God provide an alternative way of living to the empires of Babylon. The people of God provide an alternative way of living to the empires of Babylon. <clears throat> so Abram was not simply taking a journey. He was not just packing his things up and leaving. He was abandoning a certain type of lifestyle for another. He is forsaking the gods of his ancestors and following the one who he doesn't even know the name of. So Abraham serves as a foil. He serves as a contrast to the Tower of Babel. And Israel, from its beginning, was called to live differently. The word over and over again that you hear in scriptures is holy. He's called to live a holy life. 
and they are called even to live counterintuitively. I don't know how many um, battle uh, scenes I've read in the Old Testament where they won by not fighting, right? You've got, uh, the, they win by breaking jars, they win by blowing trumpets. I mean, it is just ridiculous, and it's all over the place. God is very, very clear. Um, Psalms 27 says that some trust in chariots, right? Some trust in chariots and their horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. God has been clear from the beginning. I am the one who provides your security. It's not in weapons. It's not in the things that other empires invest in. I am the one that you need to trust. And because God likes to win battles uh, in really weird ways, like breaking jars, we can expect that he might call us to live a life that kind of defies expectations, right? He is also really, um, he loves to choose people who are barren and miraculously enable them to conceive. It seems like he likes to work um, in a way that requires us to have faith, to trust in him. Uh, And when you start reading the prophets, you get an even deeper look into the heart of God and what he desires, his picture of what his world looks like. Uh, If you want to turn your cans to Micah 4, um, it's a beautiful passage. Micah 4, the first five verses. I just want to read them in full um, and meditate on these verses. But Micah 4 um, is God's picture of what the future will look like. He says, let me show you, this is what it's going to be like at the last days. Which, by the way, doesn't look like fire and destruction, right? So Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, or instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine, and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So you have this picture, this beautiful picture, of the nations who are coming to learn from the Lord, who are coming to seek wisdom and instruction from God. So Yahweh here, He governs the nations by governing his representative, Israel. God's people are meant to be a unified world community. This hope is not for peace and isolation, right? This is not, we're over here, and the way that we um, can live peacefully is because we're away from the world. What the vision is, is a peaceful international community gathered around God. And he says in these passages that this is what he's working toward. If you want to see where creation is going, this is it. 
this is what I want for my future. This is the trajectory of creation, which means that the people of God are opposed to the trajectory of war, of greed, of manipulation of power, because we know where those things lead. We know where those things lead, and it's not where God's future is headed. We want to be a part of that movement, of working towards that future, because he has given us a better way. He's given us a better way to live. Finally, and I won't read it in full, we see this image in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, at the very end, we see that there is this uh, river that flows by the tree of life. And the leaves on the tree of life, this is fascinating, the leaves on the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Which is interesting, because that means that there may be a work uh, needed, right, of healing, of international healing of wounds that we have previously done to each other. And we are entrusted with that work at the very end of that passage, it says, and we will reign with Christ. We will be ruling and leading all nations towards healing. And if we're not getting that kind of practice now, then we're not going to be able to reign well in God's future. All right, so the third thing that we learn from this story is that the foundation of the people of God is characterized by trust, not by fear. Our foundation is in trust. So we learned uh, about two weeks ago from the story of Lamech that almost every secure society, every uh, geopolitical issue, right, all of it runs on fear. So alliances are formed because we decide, okay, we're all going to get together so that this other group doesn't hurt us. So I want to I test this theory by testing your knowledge. So let's see if you can finish these phrases for me. Uh, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? We all kind of operate under this logic a little bit. There's probably some politics at your work that maybe flesh out like this. Um, the person that you don't really like, but you need to keep a really good eye on them. Um, so we all uh, kind of sing the song of Lamech. We understand this story. Um, and America, right, is a nation like any other nation. It is not founded on trust, right? If it is a nation founded on trust, then America would say, tell you what, we think that the world would be a better place without nuclear weapons, right? So we're going to get rid of our nukes first, and then we're going to trust that all you other guys are going to get rid of your nuclear weapons too, said no one in American politics ever, right? This would not happen. This would be like, you are crazy, and we are now going to get you out of office, because that is political suicide. It's literally suicide as well, right? Because we can't afford to do that. America has a lot of enemies. You don't get to be the world's superpower by being nice to people, right? It's just not how it's done. You get to be the world's superpower by having the most nukes, which we do. I don't know, maybe Russia. But anyway, um, so societies, right, they are based on fear. And it's the only way they can run, which is why Abraham and his people are so important. So if you look at Genesis 15, we'll flip back there. 
Uh, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 are quoted all over the place in the New Testament. Um, and it's for, because uh, most of the New Testament authors saw this as very foundational. So Genesis 15, we are given uh, yet again another promise, or the more of the details of the promise that God is going to give <clears throat> to Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1, came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteous. <coughs> so what we see here is that God has given Abraham a promise. Now there's some back and forth, right? Abraham's like, um... I'm, at this point, he's past 75. Uh, past 75, my wife continues to be barren. I don't see how you're going to do this. But then God takes him out, and he shows him the stars. And he says, this is my promise for you. And Abraham trusts. He believes that God is going to give him an heir. Now, along the way, it's a little bit of a bumpy road for Abraham. Okay, So he doesn't get it all right. Um, another thing that we can definitely learn from Abraham's story is that trust is a process. Um, but we see that it all hangs on Abraham's trust. Because if he doesn't trust God, he's going to put his trust in something else. And then there's no alternative to Babylon. There's no alternative to an empire. But Abraham and Israel, their unique contribution is their God-trusting way of living in the world. So God, through Abraham, has created an alternative that consists in forsaking the way of Babylon, trusting in the one who, despite all the surrounding circumstances, says he is their security. And all throughout Israel's story, he's having to remind them of this. This is mainly what the prophets are doing. Remember the God of your fathers? Remember that guy? You need to put your trust in him and not in these other gods. They're having to do this all over again. So, trust is incredibly difficult for me. As a person, I am, uh, anyone who knows me well can tell you that I am a bit of a control freak. Um, and that I struggle with kind of letting go of control and trusting. Um, now, maybe other people uh, aren't as bad as I am, but I think that this seems to be a common human problem. We always want control, right? It's like, just get out of the way, let me do it. I know that I can do it right, right? Um, and I think that this is so damaging to being a faithful follower of God. We have to learn to trust. One of, uh, again, a, a favorite theologian of mine says the best way to understand that you have absolutely no control over your life is to have children, and as all the parents in the room laugh, I am gauging that for affirmation. Um, so when you have kids, um, you can train them up right. You can instill these principles 
and all these great things into them. But man, the little buckers just, they can choose whatever they want to do, right? They can do anything they want. I mean, that makes me like break out into sweat and I'm not a parent yet. It's just thinking about how I really will have absolutely no control. And that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying, right? But God is telling us with the story of Abraham, let go. Let go of it and trust me. All right. I'm working on it. I'm a work in progress. I'll let y'all know how it goes. Um, So the final thing, the final thing that we learn is that God mediates his salvation of the world through the faithfulness of one people. God mediates the salvation of the world through the faithfulness of one people. Paul does something really interesting in the New Testament. He says over and over again that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And growing up all my life, I was like, okay, well, what does Abraham have to do with it? Why is Abraham such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that God fulfills those promises to Abraham? And how in the world does Jesus do that? Um, But it looks like over and over again, Scripture is affirming this, that Genesis 12 is this crucially important passage that we have to understand if we're to understand our story. And so one of the things that I do with my students, I'll ask them, um, why do you think Jesus was Jewish? So, What are some of the responses you get? It's usually blank stares. It's usually like, uh, I don't want to say anything potentially not politically correct, right? Um, so they usually just stare blankly, right? And then I start to remind them about Abraham, right? So Jesus becomes human, but he becomes a specific human being. He becomes an Israelite. And the reason he does is because of Genesis 12. Because God said from the beginning, Abraham, it is through you that I am going to bless the nations. Even if I have to do it myself, which turns out he kind of did, right? So Jesus, it is crucial that Jesus come from Israel because salvation has to come from Israel. Remember, God has committed that he's going to work through his broken world, even if he has to enter into that brokenness himself, which is pretty cool. Uh, So the last verse that we're going to look at, or last passage, is Galatians chapter 3. We'll end here. Galatians chapter 3, the entire book of Galatians is really answering the question, who are the children of Abraham? It's fascinating. Um, And Paul comes up with, it's the children of faith. So in uh, Galatians 3, Genesis 15 and 12 are both quoted within two verses. I think that uh, gives us a hint as to their importance there. So in Genesis 3, we will start in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, it's a direct quote from Genesis 15, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, 
In you shall all the nations be blessed. There's Genesis 12. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul is saying something truly fascinating here. He is saying that the gospel was preached in Genesis 12. And the good news is that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. God is going to save the world through Abraham and his offspring. And what Paul says, uh, he makes an interesting uh, argument. He says he uses, says offspring, not offsprings, which means he meant Jesus. Okay, I'll let Paul go there, but, uh, you know. Um, so later on, in verse 26 of chapter 3, it says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the kicker. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here's what Jesus has done. It's not just that in Jesus, God has served as a connection between God and man, as a link, but he has also created a link between Jew and Gentile. We are now, uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are now able to be called sons of not just of God, but of Abraham. We are the people of God. We're brought in. We're adopted into that family. And not only that, but we receive the inheritance. That inheritance. And when we get that, when we get that our identity is a child of God, this helps us be able to trust. For we don't have an angry God up in the sky waiting with a lightning bolt. We have a father who was waiting for his child to come home. So as we wrap up this series today, I know that I have learned that these stories that we read in Genesis tell us our story. The story of humans who have strayed from their loving creator and the story of a God who will not let us go. From Abraham to now, it has always been a story of faith. As believers in Jesus, we are connected to a long line of people who have, against all odds, placed their trust in the God of the universe, the God that all churches today celebrate as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. My hope is that as we continue uh, every week when we come here to dive into the Word of God, that we would not just be readers of the story, but we will be actors of our story. The church is meant to be the city on the hill. Not because we isolate ourselves from the world, but because we are meant to be a witness of an alternative way of living. We are meant to show a world filled with violence, fear, and hate how to live a life characterized by peace, love, and forgiveness. As we do so, we are comforted by the knowledge that as we become more in tune with God and with his heart, that we move ever closer to his future purposes and vision for his world. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you overwhelmed with gratitude for reaching out to us 
for not letting us go, for not letting us degrade into self-destruction. But you have redeemed and restored us. You have transformed us by filling us with your spirit and calling us your very own children. Help us to remember that we as a community do not live in fear. And that as such, the world has no power over us. We thank you, we honor you, and we glorify you. It's in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.